After I graduated from college and stopped shaving, like I talked about last week, I moved into a small house in Lincoln Park, Michigan, one of the suburbs of Detroit, for seminary. And uh, pretty Spartan accommodations, whatever small pieces of furniture and uh, clothing I had accumulated from my days in college. Uh, And that was about it. You can imagine kind of a bachelor pad, not a lot happening there. But then everything changed about five or six weeks later uh, when Leanne and I got married and then she came to live with me in our house. Uh, And it certainly moved from being a house to a home uh, as she arranged and and rearranged the the kitchen. And then uh, by agreement, that was the arrangement because I just can't handle that kind of change. Uh, And then decorations and paint colors and furniture and things like that, uh, all of which just were transformed over the fact of of Leanne taking up residence in what became our house. Uh, Whenever someone else starts living with you, whether it's a sibling in your bedroom, a roommate at college or as an adult, a spouse, a child, an aging parent, whenever someone else starts to live with you, our lives are affected. They are altered by that. How could they not be? As Christians united with Christ, we have our Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, texts uh, abound that talk about that. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6. Apparently the Corinthians really needed to hear this truth again and again, like us. And 2 Timothy chapter 1, that the Spirit lives in us. That's the Spirit of Christ that lives or dwells in us. We're not possessed by the Holy Spirit like an evil spirit or a, de- or a demon possesses, controls, torments its victims. We have a new life. We have a new Lord who is graciously transforming us into loving, obedient citizens of his kingdom. We will live with the king in his castle one day. Right now, we have the king living in our home with us. Paul uses this same image of dwelling or residing in our text for today, Colossians chapter 3, to instruct us about uh, yet another thing, another piece that we are to put on as those who are alive in Christ. Remember, by faith in Christ, we are God's chosen ones. We are holy, beloved We are forgiven. Because of this reality, we are embracing our responsibility to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. We are putting on love, which binds all of us and all of it together. We are letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and we are thankful Paul has now given, is about to give us one more responsibility opportunity. It's like a, I have a dash between that and my notes, right? A slash. You could put a hyphen, because uh, I'm not talking about two things. I'm talking, I want to wed in our thinking responsibility opportunity uh, as what flows out of who we are in Christ. Paul has one more of these responsibility opportunities for us to take up as God's children, as Christ's people as the Holy Spirit's residence. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, our text for this morning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I want to look at this passage, Colossians 3.16. I want to look at it phrase by phrase for our time this morning. First, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, we can't make sense of this if we don't know what the word of Christ is. What is the word of Christ that Paul is speaking about here? He's not talking about just the words of Christ, as if we're just to go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and maybe your Bible has it in red and makes it really easy to find. He's not just talking about the words of Christ. He's talking about the word or the message about Christ. The full biblical message of who Christ is 
and what God has accomplished for his people through Christ. That's the message about Christ. This is the biblical gospel that proclaims Christ, proclaims who Christ is. It's not just a key, few key points about his life. When we think about the gospel, we might be tempted to reduce it to a couple, uh, a few days of his existence, having maybe just uh, three of them, a Friday and a, and a Sunday, and that's it. That's the gospel. That's who Christ is. That's not true. The gospel proclaims who Christ is, the creator of everything, visible and invisible, uh, true God and true man. Christ, the promised prophet, priest, and king. The sinless lamb sacrificed for our sins on the cross. The resurrected lion who roars his triumph over sin and death and Satan. And the Lord of the universe who is coming to make all things right and all things new. This is who Christ is. And the word of Christ proclaims that. The word of Christ, the message about Christ also proclaims the holiness of God, the wretchedness of our sin, the warning of judgment and the promise of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. The word of Christ, this phrase is not a limiting phrase at all. It is vast. It is expansive. It is covering all of the truth of God that God has revealed to us for all truth, all truth points ultimately to Jesus Christ and to his glory. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Word of Christ is is the message about Christ. And it is this message about Christ, this full biblical gospel that is to dwell in us as Christ's people. Let the word of Christ dwell in us and you richly. The gospel is to find a home with us or take up permanent residence among us as believers. When we were camping at Beach Fork last month, I rescued a bird from drowning in the lake and I brought it back to shore. Elise offered it some food and Leanne took a box and she filled it with leaves and pine needles to make it comfortable while it hopefully uh, recuperated from its injuries. And then we tucked this box with its lids folded down nicely under our camper and we went to sleep. And during the night, a raccoon ripped a hole in the box and ate our injured bird. And it was tragic and kind of funny, depending on your sense of humor or if you are a child or a dad, because Jake started laughing as soon as I said bird. So did Cole, I imagine. Maybe Robbie, that is not what it means for something to dwell with you. Tuck it in a box under your camper. If an honored guest came to your house, you wouldn't, an honored guest. Now, maybe there are some guests that you would do this to, okay? That's between you and them. We're talking an honored guest. You wouldn't throw an old pillow and a sleeping bag in some corner of your garage as a place for them to sleep. You would clean the whole house, probably twice. Uh, You'd wash all the bedding, maybe twice. Uh, You maybe even would rearrange sleeping arrangements and schedules for them. Hey, I know this is your room normally, uh, but you're out. Uh, You're hanging out with your sisters because this is is their space for the time that they are here. Uh, What kind of permanent changes would happen if the guest came not to visit, but to live with you? Their presence would transform your home and your family and your lives. That's what happens when something or someone new takes up residence with us. And that is what the word of Christ by the Holy Spirit does in our lives as Christians. It is not to be tucked into a corner or only thought about at certain times uh, or on certain days. It is to fill us and to transform us. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, richly, not partially, not slightly, uh, not stingily. We are to let it to dwell in us totally and fully and completely and wonderfully. This is what God offers to us, that his word would dwell in us richly, that he would bless us richly, amply, 
by his word and by his spirit. But sometimes we, we only want a little bit of the fullness of what his grace has offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. We are all far too easily satisfied with only a little of what God has offered to us. He doesn't want just a corner of the garage. He offers you the rich fullness of his word dwelling in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all, Colossian believers, risen king believers. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly. And of all the ways that Paul could illustrate or emphasize the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, and there are many, he focuses on one way specifically, that the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly by Christians instructing Christians. This is not the only way that the word of Christ dwells in us richly, but it is the way that Paul is centering in on. It is a way among others that we are allowing, welcoming the word of Christ to take up a permanent residence among us by Christians instructing Christians. This is the next phrase in the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching or as you teach, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul is clearly talking to the whole church body, all of the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. By extension, he is clearly talking to all of us. This isn't written to us. Why do we keep coming back to it week after week to hear and to submit to? We are the audience of this letter. All of the redeemed, all of the reconciled to God. All who have received Christ Jesus the Lord and now walk in him. All who through faith died with him and were made alive together with him. All of us who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, declared to be such by God. All of us whose sins have been forgiven by our Lord. All of us who have the word of Christ dwelling in us. We all are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. All of us teaching all of us, admonishing all of us. That's that one another aspect. All believers instructing all believers. We know what teaching means, right? Teaching and instructing someone else about that which is true and that which is right, about whatever subject. Uh, When teaching, we begin with the basics, and then we gradually build on those basics to more complex things. When you're first learning to throw a disc golf disc, uh, you need to hold it a little differently than you're first used to. Uh, I like to hold it, you know, like I was going to bring a disc and I forgot. What a perfect opportunity. But I like to kind of wrap my fingers around the side and hold it uh, this way. You could hold it differently if you want to. Uh, you want to make sure that it's comfortable and a good firm grip. And uh, when you're throwing the disc, you know, you don't want to kind of do a big spin out here. Uh, maybe you want to think about pulling the disc across your chest, kind of like a lawnmower cable, right? You're yanking the disc this way. Make sure that you follow through. Just give it a shot. If someone's new to Christianity, I would start by teaching basics about God as creator who owns all things. Start by talking about the Bible as true and that which we must believe and submit our lives to. Talk about the reality of sin in all of us and talk about the good news found in Jesus Uh, from the simple and basic to then the advanced and the complex we are taught And we learn from that teaching. We are taught and we learn. And as we continue learning, we also teach others. So that having been taught and learning and teaching, those that we teach would learn and teach, right? There's a humility and there's a generosity to this. You have never learned anything that you have not been taught by someone else, or using the methods that someone else has taught you. If nothing else, you didn't learn to speak except by hearing, and you didn't learn to read except by someone else. If you're like, I taught myself everything else, 
Well, then you use the methods. You didn't. But if you did, you used it with the methods that someone else instructed you with. We are taught, and so we learn, and having learned, we teach, and it goes on. A humility, I have been taught. And then there's the generosity that we must pass what we have learned on to others, especially what we have learned about the word of Christ. That's teaching. There's also admonishing. Admonishing or warning is giving counsel about avoiding or ceasing from an improper course. It's a matter of correcting that which is mistaken. Almost everyone, when they first start throwing a disc golf disc, they tend to throw it in such a way that it goes high up in the air on an angle and then falls really hard to the left. Uh, and you can correct this maybe by holding the disc a little differently, like recognizing what you're doing, and, and you try to throw smooth rather than hard. Because if you're throwing hard, as you yank, your body's going to twist up and your release is going to be upward. And you see the angle of my hand is the angle of the disc, going to crash down to the left. You just need to correct that a little bit. Work on some of those things. When you're learning about Jesus Christ, you might be tempted to think that he was just a human being, that he was just a good teacher, and he was just an example of living a moral life. Jesus was a human being. Jesus was an amazing teacher, and Jesus was the perfect example of living a moral life. But those things don't go far enough. And if, you, if that's all that you think, then you need to be corrected. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God who became human. And he didn't just live morally. He didn't live uh, just better than everybody else by a little bit. He lived perfectly without ever sinning once. You might think that your mistakes aren't really that bad that you have excuses for the times when you've sinned and that the good things that you've done balance out the wrong things that you've done. Uh, but that's incorrect thinking. Your mistakes are constant and serious, almost as bad as mine. And there are no good excuses for the laws that you have broken by your sin. None. No excuses. It's no one's fault but your own and your own heart. And no amount of good things can ever erase the broken laws on your record. As a matter of fact, we can admit it, right? Our good things really aren't that good after all. And being confronted by the mistakes in our thinking, being warned about the consequences or the wrongness of our actions, those are both important parts of learning. This is what it is. Uh, ah, this, this is not what it is. Teaching and admonishing. There are two sides of instruction, of the content and of the correction. Two plus two is four. Two plus two is five? No. Two plus two is not five. Two plus two is four. Teaching and admonishing. This teaching and admonishing must be done in all wisdom. It's not just a matter of book smarts or common sense. Wisdom, biblical, real, true wisdom, is an understanding from God as to what is right and what is wrong and why and how to live that out in our everyday lives and in real life scenarios. We can think, but if we can't take what we think, we can't bring it into the, the how and the why details of everyday existence, and we lack wisdom. But our teaching must be in all wisdom as well. Instruction and correction, and if we could say application, all of which is impossible without a growing understanding of who Christ is because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So teaching the word of Christ in all wisdom reminds us again about this is the message about Christ. You know, another passage says that Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God. He, he is wisdom. If you don't have him, you don't know him, then you don't have wisdom. So we teach and we admonish one another in all wisdom. We teach the word of Christ. And one of the most fascinating and important parts of this passage to me is that Paul is repeating words that he already wrote in this letter. This verse, Colossians 3.16, is not the first time that we have heard about teaching and admonishing in wisdom. 
He used all three of those exact words previously. If you flip over, maybe it's the same page for me, I have to go over one page, to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 25, Paul is talking about the ministry that God has called him to as an apostle and a ministry that other preachers, other pastors and teachers share. He said this, I became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There it was. Warning is what's translated in Colossians 3.16 as admonishing. Teaching is the exact same word, and then once again, it's a universal, broad audience with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Warning and teaching are the same words here translated in our verse as teaching and admonishing. One of the primary ways that God's people are instructed, taught, and admonished in all wisdom is by the public proclamation, the teaching and preaching ministry of the word by godly, faithful elders or pastors. This moment in our lives as a church and in our weeks, this is a primary means of your instruction as believers, that you will be teached and admonished with all wisdom from the word. And we see that starting in the Old Testament and we see it running all the way through the New Testament. Godly, faithful teachers. We see that through church history up to the present day, the present time. Uh, And I'm thankful for teachers that have come before, that that I have learned from, faithful pastors of God's word, And here I am just standing in the stream of that to teach and admonish you, to warn you, to give wisdom of Christ to you, a primary way that God's people are instructed. But just because it's primary doesn't mean that it's the only way that God's people are instructed. The heading before all this is that Christians are instructing Christians. Elders or pastors are not the only godly ones in a local church. We are not the only ones who are wise. We are not the only ones in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. I'm not reducing the importance of qualified and called leaders in churches at all. That's a gift from Christ to his church. He sent it on high. He gave gifts, pastors and teachers So I'm not reducing that at all or like somehow stepping down from the office that Christ through you has called me to. A godly eldership is absolutely necessary, but there is a sharing, a participation, an absolutely necessary continuation of the preaching and teaching ministry of every local church that happens when the word of Christ richly takes up its dwelling in each and every one of you. And you are thereby equipped for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the role that those pastors and teachers have, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the teaching and admonishing and wisdom that comes from this pulpit is to instruct you in instructing others. You are taught so you can teach. You are admonished so you can admonish. Wisdom is given to you so that you may share that wisdom with other people. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that you may teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, that the word of Christ might dwell in them richly. Christians teach their fellow Christians. Christians admonish their fellow Christians. And every follower of Christ who is part of this body. Man, woman, boy, and girl. Every follower of Christ has a calling to instruct and urge 
biblical truth on their fellow Christians. Every single one of you who is a follower of Christ has that opportunity responsibility. The word of Christ would dwell in you richly. You would teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And of all the ways that Paul could emphasize believers teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and there are many, that your, your favorite might be in your head right now. Is he going to talk about one-on-one meetings in the ring, during the week? No. Is he going to talk about Christians counseling Christians? No. Is he going to talk about small groups training our classes? No. Paul emphasizes one way and zooms in on one way in which we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly and in which we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And that way is our congregational singing. We could read this sentence here in Colossians 3 this way. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The ESV isn't wrong. I don't have a problem with it. It's fine. But in case we think like, oh, we're supposed to teach and admonish separate from that, we're supposed to sing. Like that's just not how this text flows. This is as connected. This is funneling, word of Christ dwelling, teaching and admonishing through our congregational singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What are we to sing? Is an important question. What are we to sing is the same question as what are we to teach and admonish each other with? Same question. And it all points back to the word of Christ. That's what's to dwell in us richly. Part of dwelling in us richly is the teaching and admonishing ministry that Christians have with other Christians, which is expressed here and emphasized in the singing of a body together. We cannot lose sight of that overarching, the word of Christ, as we answer the question, what are we to sing? He answers the question, uh, well, we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But what does that mean? What does psalms and hymns and spiritual songs mean? Uh, Some look at these three terms with very modern, like 2022 modern, broad lenses, like fisheye broad, you know, and the picture gets distorted. Some look at this in the hugest, most modern way possible and give these kind of definitions. Well, psalms are Bible songs, I guess, and hymns are old songs with deep, uh, maybe confusing, rich lyrics and probably unfamiliar melodies written from 1700 to around 1900 or 1950 or something. And spiritual songs... Maybe we should capitalize those. Those are the newer songs, especially praise choruses that became really popular starting in the 80s. In other words, we can just sing whatever we want. One extreme example of this, I suppose, would be a church that I saw on video play an instrumental cover of ACDC's uh, 1979 hit Highway to Hell as part of their invitation. Interesting choice. I don't agree that Paul intended for us to have unrestricted freedom to play and sing in our gatherings anything and everything we want regardless of its content. I don't, I don't believe that that's the case, that we could make a scriptural case for that. But others would look at these three terms in the most restrictive way possible. They would take psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and claim that they all refer exclusively to the Psalter. Psalms 1 through 150, found in the Old Testament portion of our Bibles. And if you aren't familiar with the arguments for this position, uh, I think I can summarize it fairly because it, uh, it's, it used to be almost universal, uh, dwindled, growing in popularity. This is the reason why. If you're like, I don't see that, 
Well, a lot of people do, and here's why. Uh, As God's people, we are only authorized in worship to do that which God has permitted or commanded, and that includes the content of our songs. That's kind of step one. Uh, Step two, since God has given us an inspired songbook for his people to use, the Psalms, uh, it is all that we are allowed to use in worship. Uh, And then you're like, but I don't have a problem with Psalms, but it lists other stuff. So even if the hymns aren't 1700 to 1950 and the choruses aren't 1980s to the present, uh, there's still more than just Psalms, right? Well, the, the answer for that is that the Greek words translated as Psalms, hymns, and songs are all used as headings for many of the Psalms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they would say these three terms are kind of a long-form way of only talking about the book of Psalms. And furthermore, spiritual here, spiritual songs, they would say, means inspired by the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that we have that's inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, is the Scriptures. Well, so far in our gathering this morning, we've sung four songs together, and only one of them was a psalm. Uh, So it should be fairly obvious that I, as an elder, uh, and we as a church, don't hold to the exclusive psalmody position. Uh, And you will never, while I have breath in my body, hear a cover of ACDC's Highway to Hell from this church. Uh, We don't hold that position either. True, extreme, uh, but if it's anything, it's anything. But why don't I hold? Why don't we hold to either of these positions? What are we to sing? Does this passage answer that question for us? Does it provide the guidance that we are looking for? And I believe it does. And here's my reason for not holding to the everything goes position. So not whatever we want and not just the Psalter, uh, but why not whatever? And my reasoning for not holding to the everything goes position or why not whatever uh, is that the twofold purpose of our singing is to glorify God and to instruct each other as part of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And we glorify God by praising him for who he is and for what he has done. And we only know who he is and what he has done by his word, the Bible. So the content of our worship, or we could say our singing, it must be biblical. I love the song Country Roads by John Denver. I love it. And I sing it loudly. Every time that we drive back into West Virginia from a trip, whether it's crossing the bridge from Ashland or whether it's crossing it, what is that, up by Point Pleasant, we cross that bridge, we see that sign, everything stops, and we sing country roads, not just the chorus, all of it, both verses and the bridge. And it moves me emotionally because I love West Virginia. But it isn't connected to biblical truth, and it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus, so it isn't appropriate for worship. Right? Not just talking about what songs do we like, we're talking about what are we to sing in praise to God. And according to this passage, our congregational singing is supposed to be part of our teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Not every song teaches us correctly. Not every song does that. And not every song admonishes us in the right direction. I'll give you examples of that. Not every song is filled with the wisdom of God and seeing that fulfillment in Christ. We need a standard to compare the truth, the correctness of our songs. And we have it. And that standard is God's word. So the content of our singing, it must be biblical. So it's not just whatever we want. Content must be biblical. On the other end of that spectrum, why not just the Psalter? What's more biblical than that? I have two main reasons for not holding to the exclusive psalmody position. Just to give you fair warning, maybe we should have done this at the door. This part's going to take a little while, but I think it's worthwhile for us. Everybody take a breath. Let it out. All right. Here we go. Why not just the Psalter? I start with a textual reason. And what I mean by that is from a text. This text. 
Colossians 3, verse 16. Because of this passage, I do not hold to exclusive psalm singing. And a textual reason could be summarized in this, that Paul's teaching about worship or singing in worship cannot be fulfilled only by the Psalter. It cannot be fulfilled only by the Psalter. The word of Christ or the message about Christ stands at the head of this verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this must affect at bare minimum the content of our worship through both ways of singing. We sing, we praise God for who he is and what he has done. Who is God? The fullness of the revelation in the New Testament gives us the truest answer to that question. God is Trinity. And we worship him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot do that with the Psalms on their own. What has God done? Who is God? What has he done? What has God done? In the Psalter and all of the Old Testament, the greatest expression of God's redemptive power is the exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, the greatest deliverance that God had accomplished on behalf of his people. And that is just a shadow that pales in comparison to the single greatest climactic expression of God's redemptive power and covenant faithfulness, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And without the knowledge of that from the New Testament, what are we singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God about? What are you thankful for? Who he is and what he has done. And you have that only in Old Testament terms. That is insufficient. Are you thankful for the Red Sea? And that's the best. Are you thankful to God for the sacrifices at the temple and the greatness of King David? No. We thank God for the resurrection, for Christ's finished once for all sacrifice. And the name of our king is Jesus. And he is glorious and beautiful above all. The Psalter on its own is insufficient to worship God for who he has revealed himself to be and what he has done for his namesake and for his people. The Psalter on its own is insufficient to worship God for who he has revealed himself to be and what he has done for his namesake and his people. Faithful, biblical, God-glorifying singing requires the full truth of the New Testament. And even when we sing from the Psalms, we must have the substance and the light of the New Testament shed clearly on the shadows of the old. Well, what about these three terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Aren't they all referring to the Psalter? It is true that they are used in what's called the Septuagint, Greek Old Testament. They are used in the Septuagint as headings for some of the psalms. They are not the only headings given. And that's not the only place where the terms appear. They are also used in Greek literature to refer to other types of songs offered in worship of other gods outside of the Bible. So they weren't created by the writers, the translators of the Septuagint. When Paul uses terms that would have caused his Jewish readers to think of the Septuagint, but would have caused his Gentile readers of songs that they had sung to pagan gods, why should we automatically assume one over the other? That's a massive part of that case. Well, every reader of the New Testament would have automatically thought Septuagint. I don't believe that that's true because there was also a context from which they were drawn where the Jews could have thought of it from their Jewish context and the Gentiles would have thought of it from their Gentile context. And to just say, it's like, well, we need to restrict our worship because they must have thought of it this way. It's not a sufficient argument because you can make a case on both sides. So it doesn't just come down to what about the words? It's not that easy. It's far from absolutely certain that these three terms are only meant to point us to the Psalter. 
a good case to be made for seeing them broader than that. What about this spiritual aspect? The spiritual description of spiritual songs is not the same word as God-breathed, which describes the inspiration of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. Different word in the original language, different word in our language, uh, than what we find here as spiritual or in other places. Any other places where spiritual is used in the New Testament, because this isn't the only one, it does point us to the involvement of the Holy Spirit. But his work is not limited to the inspiration of God's word. He is constantly working to sanctify his people and to teach them the truths of God's inspired word. In fact, I'd almost go so far as to say, need a little bit more digging before I really put, the, put, put my period on this one, I'd almost go so far as to say that none of the uses of spiritual in the New Testament are restricted to that which is inspired. None of them. Now, obviously, if this is, that would be one. But I don't believe that it is. And to say it's like, well, it has to be because this is, right, is sort of begging the question of that argument. But nowhere else. Well, the law is spiritual, right, as opposed to fleshly. So that's not, well, the law is inspired, yes. That's just not the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 7. And other places as well, that which is spiritual has to do with the spirit involved in our spirit, but is not the same thing as inspiration. All of its uses do have to do with the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in believers, not his finished work of inspiring scripture. And finally, not finally sermon, just finally on this point. Finally, the warning and teaching in all wisdom of Paul's preaching ministry ought to inform the teaching and admonishing in all wisdom of our singing ministry to each other. Remember, same words. Is preaching simply reciting God's inspired word without explanatory comments or personal applications? I certainly don't think so. (laughs) That's not our practice, and it's not been anybody else's practice either, Old Testament or New Testament. Take the word, read the word, explain the word, apply the word for teaching and admonishing. We take the same phrases about the same content, the word of Christ, the mystery of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the word of Christ. And we see that in faithful preaching, it's warning and teaching from God's word, entering into the contexts of people's lives. And this is also true of faithful biblical singing. God's people are benefited by the explanation and application of the truths of God's word by spirit-filled songwriters, not inspired, spiritual, filled with the spirit, which is true of every believer. There's a textual reason from this text. That's it. Paul's teaching about worship here cannot be fulfilled only by the Psalter. There's also a biblical reason. Uh, what I mean by that is, like, it's not like Colossians is not part of the Bible. Uh, textual is kind of narrow, right? This passage, biblical, I mean everything else. The, the whole scope of biblical revelation that gives me reason for why not just the Psalter. And here's my summary of that, is that God's people have never been restricted to the Psalter for their worship. Never. That takes, some, that takes a case, doesn't it? First, God's old covenant people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were not restricted by God in their worship and their singing. They were not restricted to the Psalter. In Exodus 15, Moses wrote a song for the people of God to use to praise God after the crossing of the Red Sea. This song is inspired. We have it in Exodus 15. It's wonderful. But it is not included in the Psalter, even though we do have another song of Moses that is included in the Psalter, Psalm 90. Inspired, not in the Psalter, even though Moses, who wrote Exodus 15, does have a different psalm in the Psalter that we don't have anywhere else. Hannah, in in 1 Samuel 2, excuse me, we find the poetic Prayer of Hannah. Aha! Prayer, not song, doesn't count. Well, we may see a difference between songs and poetic prayers, but the Psalter itself does not make that distinction. 
In the book of Psalms, you have psalms and prayers and songs. Yet this inspired prayer, I would say prayer song, prayer poem song, by Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, is not included in the Psalter. And I can hear the counter-argument now. Peter, both of those examples predated David and the compiling of the Psalter. You can't expect God's people to use something that didn't exist yet. (laughs) What a great point. I wish that we had some examples of God's old covenant people after the compiling of the Psalter or while it was being compiled, also using other worship. Like Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 38. In Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah composes a poetic prayer song. And again, in Hebrew, those things are all wed together. Praising God for his miraculous healing. He was not an inspired author anywhere else in scripture. And his prayer song is not included in the Psalter. Even though... According to 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30, the Psalter was in existence because we see King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, 30 commanding the Levites to sing, this is a quote, to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer, both of whom are very common psalm authors. So he had it, he had access to it, and... He had uh, a command that it would be sung, and yet, even though he had access to it, and it would have been sufficient for that, he composed his own song to praise God for this new thing that had happened in his healing. The Psalms were unquestionably used in the singing worship of God, but it wasn't used exclusively. Hezekiah was free to compose something else. And it seems likely from that same passage in Isaiah 38 that he composed more songs than just this one. Let them sing my music or my musics or my songs, he says in that poetic song prayer in Isaiah chapter 38. And we also see this in the inspired prayer song, and it says song that time, of Habakkuk, recorded in Habakkuk chapter 3, which has both a heading like many of the Psalms and concludes with the musical notations to the choir master with stringed instruments. But Habakkuk's poetic prayer song is not in the Psalter, and yet it was written for the congregational singing of God's people. The old covenant people of God. There are other examples as well. This is actually the shortest version of this sermon. The point is, the old covenant people of God did not restrict their worship to the Psalter. And second, God's new covenant people were not restricted to the Psalter for their worship. The new covenant people of God, the the New Testament church, if you want to call it that, did not simply recite or sing uninterpreted Psalms. We turn to Acts chapter 4. You can turn, or I'll just read it. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles, Peter and John, are arrested by the Jewish leadership. And upon their release, they return to their friends, the text tells us, and tell them what happened. And when they, Peter, John, and friends, when they heard it, they, Peter, John, and friends, They lifted their voices together to God and said, and then it introduces their corporate prayer song, and then they recited some, or maybe all, maybe just Luke just sort of shortens it for us, but they recite some and maybe all of Psalm 2 together. Aha! We see the New Testament church gathering together under the leadership of the apostles and singing praise to God with the Psalter. Yes, We do. And then they proceeded to interpret and apply the truths of that psalm to Jesus and to their situation, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom because the singing of Psalm 2 is incomplete if every single person singing it does not know that it is pointing to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. You sing Psalm 2, and all you think of is David, 
that is not praise that is acceptable to God. You have to have Jesus' name in that. And our version does when we sing that. And this is why. But we're supposed to say, well, the New Testament church, all that we have access to and all that's commanded by the apostles is just the singing, reciting of the Psalms. But that's not the practice of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 4. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 14, where 1 Corinthians 14, 27 says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What the ESV translates there as hymn, each one has a hymn, is the word psalm. Same word psalm, not a variation of it, the exact same. Psalmos, actually, because it's just borrowed right from Greek. However, it is very unlikely that Paul is using the word psalm to refer to the Psalter. In the context, it is more likely that this is a new song of praise, which is what psalm means. Is it technical or is it not technical? Is it specific to that one book or is it just a song of praise? Are we going to assume our answer or are we going to be able to see that there's a broadness to it? More likely, this is a new song written by spirit-filled believers in Corinth, just like the lesson or teaching that they brought, just like the revelation, just like the tongue, just like the interpretation that they brought to the body in worship. Not just that one person pops up speaking in tongues and one person has a prophecy and another person's like, I really like Psalm 26 today. And finally, how many times do you get to say finally before you mean it? This isn't it. God's eschatological people, end times, heavenly people, are not restricted to the Psalter for their worship. So we have Old Covenant, New Covenant, and eschatological, which is in really the Old Covenant and New Covenant brought together and pushed into heaven. In the book of Revelation, the angels and the eschatological people of God in heaven do not restrict their worship to the Psalter. For example, in Revelation 15, we read this of the saints in heaven. Some songs we read about, uh, we recited together about the four beasts, probably angelic, 24 elders, probably like apostles and uh, apostles brought together, this union of the old new covenant, but don't quote me on that because I haven't studied that, studied that very well. Shouldn't even put it in here. Scratch. But this is clearly talking about the saints who have suffered. And it says this, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, that sounds psalm-like, doesn't it? You know what psalm that is? None of them. It alludes to psalms. It points to the truth of psalms. It points to other portions of scripture. But we don't have that in scripture as written by Moses. And we don't have it from the Psalter. It is not a direct quotation of any portion of scripture because they didn't need to do that. They can draw from scripture to praise God along with Moses, with Christ as the lamb, along with David. The eschatological people of God, the saints in heaven, do not restrict their worship to the Psalter. I also have a theological reason that I was going to develop, but it's 1204 and I love you. The theological reason is that new covenant worship is always superior to old covenant worship. It should not and cannot be more restricted. And Paul argues for that type of thinking in Colossians chapter 2 and the whole book of Hebrews, but I'm not going to get into that right now. And that was long. No amens. But I think it was valuable for us to consider together. But here's the point. What, what are we to sing? What should we sing in praise to God? Uh, and not just because we want to, but, but what does God want to hear from us? We want to sing songs that God wants to hear from us, right? And, and it's not anything written by ACDC. First, I think we should sing psalms. And we do, uh, every week, and have for three and a half years. And it's wonderful. 
I'm thankful for that. They have been given to us by God to cry out to him in any and every circumstance, joyful and sorrowful, elated and depressed, hopeful and hopeless, victorious and defeated, confused and angry, and just because there's a psalm for you. What full-hearted praise Psalm 103 and 150 combined to give us last week when Isaac led us in praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Wonderful. And what comfort we spoke to each other this morning with my soul finds rest in God alone from Psalm 62. Why would we not want to sing the Psalms? But what else should we sing? I think we should sing, secondly, other scripture passages. I love singing, come praise and glorify, walking us through Ephesians chapter one. And I loved singing all things together with you from Colossians one today. It would be great, uh, Robbie, Isaac, to sing of God's deliverance from the Red Sea in Exodus 15. My Soul Among Lions has a really cool version of that. And I also love singing the story of God's greater deliverance, which is Jesus' death and resurrection in Jerusalem, or oh, praise the name. On the third, at break of dawn, the, the son of heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? Isaiah. The angels roar for Christ the king. I want to sing about that redemption from other scripture passages. Let's sing with Hannah. Let's sing with Mary. Let's sing with the four beasts and the 24 elders and the saints surrounding God's throne in Revelation. And then third, we need word of Christ songs. This is what we should sing. We should sing songs steeped in biblical truths that grow out of and point us back to the fullness of the word of Christ, interpreting and applying biblical gospel truths to our situations. Be thou my vision. Come thou fount, amazing grace. Thy works, not mine. The church's one foundation. Death was arrested. Not in me, for we will feast in the house of Zion last week. And my worth is not in what I own and worthy that we sang today. As God's people in Christ, let us rejoice that God is pleased as we praise him, both with his word and with the teaching and admonishing of wise, Christ-centered, spirit-filled songwriters drawing truth and praise from his word. I need your help. I me, Peter, Ambler, I want to be like Jesus, but I cannot do it alone. God has given me his Holy Spirit to live in me, to transform me, but he has chosen to accomplish this work not in me on my own, but rather in me as one part of a body, one brick in a building, one member of a family, this body, this building, this family, risen king church. I need your instruction to pull and push me toward letting the word of Christ dwell richly in me. As we gather together each week and as we live alongside each other throughout our lives, I need you to teach me and admonish me in all wisdom. Day by day and week by week, I'm so prone to forget the gospel. So I need you to remind me of its beautiful truths in one of the ways, a wonderful, glorious way, which you remind me week by week of the beauty of Christ and the truth of the gospel is by your singing. I need your singing. They say preachers have feet of clay. It means that they're only human. Mine, my clayness doesn't stop down at my feet. It just keeps climbing up. I think it's only to my shins, and then I find out I actually have thighs of clay and all the way up. Sometimes, like, am I drowning in it? And I come with a sermon that I prepared, and my heart is empty and discouraged. 
out of season, and yet I come up to preach. And I enter this room, and I see you, and I hear you, and you point me back to Christ. I need your help. I need your instruction. I need your singing. Please embrace the opportunity, responsibility that you have as my brothers and sisters to sing of Christ to me so that my worship can be renewed by your worship. And by God's grace, I will do the same for you. Our Father and our God, you are worthy of all of our worship. Thank you for the fullness of the truth of the biblical message of who Jesus is and what you have accomplished through him, planned from time and eternity and brought into creation 2,000 years ago and recorded for us in your word and proclaimed among the nations and what we look forward to one day seeing in its fullness. Thank you for the fullness of that revelation that we can sing and that we can sing out from. May this be... uh, sweet, sweet song in your ears, even as we thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Amen.